0: Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, NPR correspondents Ina Jaffe and Kirk Siegler. All right, let's start the show.
1: Hey, y'all from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute here today with two great guests in studio with me. I'm here with Ina Jaffe, NPR correspondent covering the agent of America and all its variety. It's a great name for a beat. (laughs) I like that. So do I. Oh, yeah. Also here with Kirk Sigler, NPR national correspondent covering Southern California and America's urban-rural divide. Thank you both for being here.
2: Oh, this is fun. Thanks. Oh, yeah.
1: It's great to be here. So I'm playing one of my favorite Rolling Stones songs for you guys today. It's a song called "Miss You. And I'm playing it, one, because I like the song, but two, because Mick Jagger is in the news this week. Did you guys hear about this? I did not. So Mick Jagger, as you know, is from the UK. He is a fan of soccer. Um, But people this week are blaming him for causing the English team to lose their World Cup game against Croatia. They say that there's a Mick Jagger curse. So Mick Jagger was in uh, the stadium for the game where England lost to Croatia. Um, he was in the stadium when the English team lost twice in 2014 at the World Cup. And he was in the stadium when the U.S. lost to Team Ghana in 2010. And he was rooting for the U.S. The so.
2: superstition of sports fans knows no bounds. No
3: bounds. So you're playing the Stones to rub salt in the wound? or Basically, yes. yeah. 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 This song is so fun because it has a saxophone solo as well.
1: What's your good luck charm for sports, either of you? Well, cuz you're a Chicago fan, right?
2: I am a Cubs fan and every time I go to see the Cubs at Dodger Stadium, they lose. <laughs> And so my husband and I have gotten into the idea of maybe we shouldn't, shouldn't go to these games anymore. Are you the
3: Mick Jagger of the Cubs?
2: I may be.
1: <laughs> what about
3: you, Kurt? I sort of have to, I don't really know that I have a good luck charm because my team has been so unsuccessful. Who is your team? Oh, the University of Colorado Buffaloes. Okay. In football, but I have to watch the games, like, alone. Why, you get too nervous? Yeah, too nervous, too nervous. I was actually stressed over even watching uh, the England game the other day. My brother was there. He was in Manchester, Uh and everybody was intensely watching the game, and the whole country shut down, basically, he said. And then when they lost, pin drop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Ina and Kirk are
1: here with me to look back on the week of news, culture, and everything else. We have a lot to discuss. President Trump has been traveling across the world. He's been in Europe. We will talk to an American World Cup fan from Cameroon who was a big fan of the French team, and he has a reason why. Uh, but let's get into it right now the way that we always do. We start the show by having each of our panelists describe their week of news in just three words. Ina, you're up first.
2: My three words are New World Disorder.
1: Disorder. Okay. Tell me why. <laughs>
2: so, yeah, this is about NATO and all that stuff. huh.
1: Um,
2: you know, I feel like I'm coloring outside the lines a little bit here because- That's what been, we like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you do. It's so evil. <laughs> I've been covering domestic news and policy for 30 years. Yeah. But uh, I don't usually talk about NATO. And this was kind of an amazing thing to witness. Oh, yeah. That- He goes there. He excoriates our allies, especially Germany. Um, He tells them they're not paying enough, that it's unfair to uh, the United States. They contribute a little to their national defense. And it's really encapsulated for me in a photograph, which is – you may have seen this. It's all the uh, NATO leaders are together in a group. All of them are looking up towards the upper right-hand corner of the photograph Except for Donald Trump, Where's who's looking? looking towards the upper left-hand <laughs>
1: like corner,
2: the opposite, exactly direction. opposite direction, and you know, it's possible that he actually would really like this picture. It shows him <laughs> definitely being uh, the odd man out and not just one of the crowd. Yeah, um, and uh, somebody else who might like that photograph is uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin.
1: Exactly. Because
2: he doesn't like NATO. He considers it a threat. Yeah. And, um, well, that is a
1: threat. I mean, because it was created to be a check on the former Soviet Union. Exactly. <laughs> yeah,
2: Exactly. So, um, you know, after a brief stop in Great Britain, Monday, he sits down with uh, Vladimir Putin in Helsinki.
1: To have the easiest meeting, he says.
2: He says that will be the <laughs> easiest thing for him, probably, yeah. on this trip. And for someone who is a baby boomer okay, and has grown up with this transatlantic alliance as sort of a given.
1: Well, it's defined geopolitics since World War II.
2: Yes, exactly. It is like the world order. Yes. Um, And some would uh, credit NATO with uh, contributing to peace and prosperity in Europe for 70 years. Yeah. It really is a brave new world.
3: Um, Kirk, do you have three words? I do. Uh, It kind of dovetails along what we're talking about. My three words are take the bait. Okay. Um, and I feel like the news media still does not have a real clear uh, strategy for covering this president. Um, I'd say you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, it's not exactly a bold statement. Yeah. but um, you. Know, and, and by that I'm talking about specifically, does anybody even remember the primetime announcement about the Supreme Court pick? Oh, my God, that was <laughs> this week. <laughs> yeah. I but in the lead up to that... Just yeah. like the previous one, yeah. uh, how much of the news cycle was dominated on preview stories and oh, who could yeah. it be? Well, And, and then even and, like the day before, it was like, Rick? we've just seen this almost justice maybe get in this car going this way, which means it could so, be him
1: and we don't know. It was insane. So I'm yeah. still sort
3: of old, old school, but I printed out this uh, tweet because uh-huh. I didn't think I'd remember it. And my, phone, my phone's on airplane mode as instructed. Okay. Um, but... <clears throat> right as that uh, primetime announcement was going on, yeah. and uh, you know, like a lot of people called it a reality show stunt. Uh, there's a reporter from the HuffPost who said, he tweeted out, "What is the point of this? Are news organizations really competing to get the quote scoop of a pick Trump is going to announce publicly exactly. anyway?" Exactly. I was just sort of scratching my head during all this. I actually went. Uh, I was not assigned to cover this because we're out here in LA, but I actually seemed happy about the, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I marked the occasion of the announcement by going to watch the Fred Rogers documentary, which was kind of an interesting- This is Mr. Rogers. Yes. yes. Okay. So, was it good? Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Um, but I was thinking at the time, like, it was an interesting time to look at a man who was very kind and talk about civility and politeness. But I was <laughs> thinking about what if, you know, every newsroom in America, and some do this, but what if we, what if every newsroom turned off the- the uh, 24-hour cable channels, mm-hmm. logged off of Twitter, mm-hmm. sent their reporters out into the communities that they cover. Some of them already do this, of course, and just talk to people. I, I th- that's called local newspapers. <laughs> uh, but what if everyone did that? I think that the results would be surprising to yeah. a lot of people because I think what gets lost in a lot of this is that the majority of Americans are not watching cable news. Yeah, The majority of Americans Twitter. are not on Twitter, yet the news cycle is dominated by or driven by what's going on in these platforms.
1: Well, there's many days, especially when you reach that like Supreme Court fever pitch. It seems as if there are Beltway journalists all trying to out-Beltway journalists, other Beltway journalists. And the coverage is just for that. The scoops, the quote-unquote scoops. Yeah, totally. Uh, You guys, I have three words, too. Okay. My three words are, wait, there's more. (laughs) And I say this because there have been a few stories I've been following this week where just when you think it's over... You find out it's not. So going back to that Supreme Court pick that Kirk mentioned earlier, the initial story was that Kavanaugh had been picked after weeks of speculation about who Trump was going to choose. And the story was that Trump was still making his mind up just before the announcement But then, as soon as the announcement was made, you began to hear these reports that Trump may have made his mind up a while back. There were multiple reports that in the same meeting where he told Trump he'd retire, Justice Kennedy also really kind of helped Trump see his way to picking Kavanaugh. The two, according to reports, discussed specific names of who might replace Kennedy. Now, keep in mind, Kavanaugh clerked for Kennedy years ago. Um, So basically you have a sitting Supreme Court justice in conversation with the sitting president about who will replace him on the court. That is, to put it mildly, a little unseemly. And it was a story that we found out after we thought the story was done. Um, The second thing for me that made me say, wait, there's more, um, was this announcement this week of potentially more tariffs. Uh, We are in what people are calling now an official trade war with China. uh, Billions of dollars of tariffs on thousands of goods. Um, And this week, Team Trump said that they're going to prepare another round of tariffs on Chinese goods worth $200 billion. Uh, There's a list of thousands of more things that could face 10% tariffs, The things on this list are a lot. Fruits, vegetables, handbags, refrigerators, rain jackets, baseball gloves. It's a lot of stuff. Um, And this comes after, of course, the U.S. imposed 25% tariffs on other Chinese goods. Beijing responded with their own tariffs. There could be more and more and more.
3: I would just pose a question. What do you think the strategy is, the long game strategy is here on behalf of the administration? You know I don't have an answer (laughs) to that question.
2: (laughs) And the question (laughs) is, is there a long game strategy? Well, That's the thing. I
1: mean, this also happens this week when you've seen people as high up as Mitch McConnell, the
3: Senate Majority Leader, Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, both Republicans saying, stop it. I was just in Nebraska reporting a housing series we're doing, and that – is one of the places uh, in rural Western Nebraska where farmers have been, you know, over the past decade or so been told strategy wise to ramp up their exports. That's the way to stay afloat in this market, produce, produce, produce more corn, produce more wheat. That is the tariffs. The idea of the tariffs in the Midwest is very concerning to a lot of people. Um, I was also up in Idaho. I would give one example. These are tariffs that were put on Canadian lumber, not in the most recent round. But a, a builder I was visiting out in a suburb of Boise said, hey, look at that house we're building right there. I can tell you right now that, that uh, because of the tariffs on Canadian lumber, mm-hmm. that uh, cost me $7,000 more to build, which is no wow. small chunk. He had a number. Yeah. Yeah, huh. he had a number. Um, and who uh, feels the effects of that? Who gets that yeah. passed on to them? All
1: right, it's time for a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about why a lot of World Cup fans think the French team is actually African. You're listening to It's Been a Minute. We'll be right back.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bloom with three O's. Is your 401k on pace? Go to bloom401k.com NPR for a smarter, simpler way to grow your 401k. Bloom does all the work for you, so you can relax, then retire. See how your 401k stacks up in minutes. Enter your employer-held 401k login info at bloom401k.com and get a free analysis. Use code NPR to get one month managed free. When the Supreme Court heard the travel ban case this spring... Donald Trump, president of the United States versus Hawaii. One family story came up in oral arguments.
3: This is a 10-year-old daughter in Yemen with cerebral palsy who wants to come to the United States to save her life. What happens to that girl and her family? On the next Embedded, on the NPR
1: One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all, before we get back to the show... Uh, If you haven't heard me talk about it yet, I'm going to talk about it again. We're having a live show, live It's Been a Minute, in Los Angeles on July 30th at the Lyon Hotel. I'm talking to actor John Cho, who you know. He was in the Harold and Kumar movies. He was in the Star Trek movies. And now I'm going to talk with John about his new movie. It's called Searching. It's already one of the most buzzed about films of the summer. As a special treat, we'll also have on stage with me the director of that movie, Anish Chaganti. It's going to be fun, and I want you there. Uh, you can get tickets at nprpresents.org, nprpresents.org. All right, back to the show. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm here with two guests, Kirk Siegler, NPR correspondent, Anna Jaffe, NPR correspondent. Thank you both for being here. It's great to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. All right, guys. Before we get to our next segment, I have a quick question for you. Um, did you hear the latest with IHOP, aka IHOP? They changed their name back to, I-ho- to IHOP from IHOP. Oh, IHob. did they? Yeah. You I know how didn't they. Even know it was-
2: yeah, I, that was so weird. It was I didn't weird. know they changed it yeah. back.
1: So they changed their name to IHOP, I H O B, to say, "Hey, the bees for burgers. We sell burgers. You'll love them." They even like changed the lettering on all the IHOP stores. This week, uh, they said it was all a publicity stunt. Now they're back to IHOP with a P. So this makes me want to ask the question: uh, If you guys were to temporarily change your name and then change it back, what would you change it to? Uh...
3: uh. <laughs> How about, uh, how about Sick Kurgler? Oh, okay. Good? Yeah. Came off the work. top of my head. Yeah. I didn't make that up. It's been around for <laughs> a while. You long.
2: know, I don't feel like I have to change my name. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> because, no, because other people give me all these names because they are not familiar with Ina. What do they call you? Um, I've been called uh, Anna Jeffrey. <laughs> 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 and... Even once at a party years ago got into an argument with someone about whether or not that was my name. He insisted that it was. (laughs) Um, I get a lot of mail addressed to Ira. Ah. Um, So I, I feel like, you know, changing my name at this point would be beside the point. I
1: have so many. You have so many. So I've always wanted my name to be more of a public radio name. And there are some people online that say that the way to make your name sound more public radio is to add a consonant or two. So I would add an H to Sam and make it Sam. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Could I say kirk-sigler? Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. Now it's time for a segment that we call long distance. So what you're hearing now is the sound of the French World Cup team celebrating. Yes, the French World Cup team. The song being played right there is called Seka Seka. It is a classic West African party song. And most of these French players that are dancing are black. Um, For some time now, lots of French soccer stars have come from immigrant and African roots. And this year, out of 23 players on the French World Cup team, at least a dozen have African ancestry. Uh, They're from countries including Congo, Cameroon, Guinea, Senegal, Togo, Mali, Angola, Algeria, Nigeria. Um, And a lot of folks have noticed this, and a lot of folks like it, because they say the French team is the last African team left in the World Cup. (laughs) So I wanted to talk this out, because I found it quite fascinating, Uh, and we called up Jeff Bassoy. He is an independent radio producer and podcaster from Minneapolis-St. Paul, um, and he is someone who is rooting for the African-French team. We spoke to Jeff earlier this week ahead of Sunday's big match. Hey, Jeff, you there? Hey, Sam, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Doing very well. You're ready for World Cup weekend, I'm guessing.
4: I am. I am absolutely excited. Um, yeah. Kind of bittersweet since it's coming to an end, but excited nonetheless because my team is there.
1: Your team being the French World Cup team, but you are not French. Uh, You are black, you live in America, you're Mm -hmm. of African descent. You're from Cameroon? Yep. Okay, when did you come to the U.S.? I moved to the U.S. when I was five years old in 99. So you are black, from Cameroon, in the States, rooting for this French team, which has a lot of black players. Have you noticed that there's like an African diaspora across the world that is rooting for these guys on this team?
4: yeah it's it's a little bit of like you have some that are really for it
1: and Uh you have others
4: that are really not why not uh you know why not is because you know you still have people um especially africans particularly africans that are just like you know they've colonized us they still have um you know infrastructures in africa that still continue to rip away resources from african countries Hmm. I can't go out to support an imperialistic country um, and these French-African sons. I mean, why didn't they just come home to play for our countries instead? Whereas I'm more of the camp of, you know, I strongly believe in representation, right? And obviously France being my favorite team. And from the first World Cup that I can remember watching, uh, which was was, the 98 World Cup in Paris uh what was so special about that 98 team particularly mm-hmm. is how politicized that team was and i and i think this 2018 team in the same way is politicized but it's different because in 98 so? it was a statement there was a slogan huh. it was you know black blanc bleu which is kind of like the spin of the play of the the french national flag of you know blue white red which kind of like symbolized the unity in france of cuz i said it was like we black to- white arab right Exactly. Black, white, Arab. Exactly. Um, Which was kind of like a spin of, you know, we are children of immigrants, are French. You know, Mm -hmm. and winning that 98 World Cup with such a diverse cast
1: was huge. And what's so interesting, I I began to dig into the history of France to see why in the world all these black players are in France. And Mm -hmm. there's a reason for it. There's two big reasons. You know, so after World War II... France welcomed a lot of immigrants to help kind of rebuild their country. And they actually brought in more immigrants for many years post-war than any other European country. And so then you have all these immigrants here, many from Africa. And uh, France also starts this nationwide soccer academy. Where they train all kinds of kids from all over France. You put those two things together, and voila, there are black French soccer stars. So you know, it's France did this on purpose. Oh yeah, they did. I mean,
4: Clairefontaine is the premier soccer academy in the world. Huh. Um, and you probably saw this in your research, but you know, Clairefontaine has also developed. Uh, players for, I think, like many of the teams in this World Cup.
1: Yeah, The Tunisian national
4: team was mostly French players. My goodness. Uh, Portugal <laughs> had three
1: players that were French. It's kind of amazing. You know, it, it is really interesting to see these black immigrant players on the French World Cup team as all of Western Europe grapples with these big questions over migration and immigration and borders. And you're seeing a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric in France. Uh, yeah. What do you think and how do you think the visual of that French team affects that debate? You were telling us that, um, that you have some family in Paris, right?
4: Yeah, I do have some family in Paris. I have uh, my eldest brother, um, who's in his mid to late 30s, uh, moved to France when he was 20 years old. I you said mid
1: to late 30s. I do not want you to say his real age. <laughs>
4: I mean, he's <laughs> the older brother. I'm the youngest. You know how that goes. Okay. Um, okay. They, they, they always secretive about stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, he's a he's a banker out there with two kids. Um okay. You know, and and I think sometimes about knowing the history of France when it comes to migrants, and even for my yeah. oldest brother. Yeah. You know, he you know is always tells me the story about like the first time he confronted, you know, racism or discrimination for being African. Uh, hmm. What happened, France? which was when he went to his workplace at the bank that he was at, and he came to work on like a Friday and kind of like this African button up shirt, right? Yeah. African patterns and colors, a flowery yeah. some of our garments are. And he was telling me about how a lot of his coworkers were talking behind his back about like, oh, you know, Patrick, huh. uh, he wore these uh, button up shirts. And, you know, they're just really talking about his back and it's been almost 10 years since then. Huh. And he still has people that still talk about that day. Like, remember when he did that and you wore that shirt kind of like pointing him out, like that was something that he shouldn't have done out of character. Like we don't do this here. And he's a
1: banker. He, I mean, like he is like probably, you know, in the upper, upper middle class. Exactly. You know, so
4: I, so I think about his kids, right. Who, you know, he has a, five-year-old, soon-to-be five-year-old on the 22nd, and, you know, her her younger brother, they share the same birthday, who will be three. Mm-hmm. So I think about them, watching these games, and you see this team and the Paul Pogba's and the Zonzi's and the names, right? The symbolism mm-hmm. of the name appearing. Mm-hmm. And you also have an African-sounding name or an Arabic name, and you feel like you're welcome. You feel accepted, and you don't feel like you always have to combat everything around you. I think mm-hmm. that is a very beautiful thing. And I yeah. think that's a One of the most beautiful things about this French team.
1: You know, one of the things I always think when I hear these stories of immigrants um, running circles around the rest of us uh, and doing (laughs) extraordinary, awesome things is how some of the rhetoric around immigrants makes them superhuman. And people who mean well and want to speak positively about immigrants end up making them superheroes, which (laughs) ends up kind of reinforcing this idea that they have to go above and beyond just to belong and I got to say personally I don't always like that um, do you think that some of the rhetoric around these really successful soccer players feeds into the stereotype of immigrants as superheroes which can be kind of um, limiting and, and, and stressful I'm guessing for people that are typecast that way
4: I mean without a doubt and and I would go even a step further uh, from immigrants huh. as superheroes I would say black people in general okay.
1: yeah. as superheroes
4: um, and I think to stick to France, and I'm going to go outside of soccer, for example, you know, the Malian immigrant that, you know, climbed the side of the building to rescue a baby in Paris.
1: Oh, yeah. Then they were like, you could be a citizen now.
4: <laughs> you can really be a weird. citizen now. He met the president, yeah. he gained
1: citizenship,
4: Yeah, he got a job with the firefighters. You know, it, it just goes to show just how you have to be. Above and beyond, and not just like intelligent or curious, yeah. but you just have to be legitimate, a superhuman, to represent your country.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so last question. I usually ask uh, callers what they're going to be doing for the weekend, but I know what you're going to be doing this weekend. You're going to be watching oh, the game. Yeah. <laughs> but where are you going to watch?
4: I am going to be at Brit's Pub, uh, which is here in downtown Minneapolis. I've is it watched. a British pub? It is a British pub, so I know... Oh, salt on the wound, bro. Salt on the wound. <laughs> hey, that's not dumb. They did, they lost their game. I ain't mad at it. They lost their game. We won.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay.
4: Uh, so I'll be there. Uh, I've been there for every French game. I'll okay. be wearing the same jersey that I've worn at every single game because it's a good luck charm at this okay. point. Do you wash it? I mean, Sam, I'm African. I'm, I'm cleansly. I, I, I got to watch it, okay?
1: <laughs> <laughs> noted. Noted. Hey, man, well, thank you so much for talking with me. Um, I really appreciate your time. And you know what? I am low key rooting for France, too.
4: Well, thank you, Sam. I really appreciate that. The more fans, the merrier. France is an African team, they're a pan African team. So, allez les All
1: right, man, take care. Take care. Ciao. Bye bye. <laughs> It's a very good song. I am moving. Yeah. I would dance to this, too.
3: On an airplane, in an office.
2: In a studio. In
3: studio. <laughs> Afro, Afro pop is like the thing that everybody dances to. It's like you can't You not can't dance. not dance to this. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Are you guys a World Cup followers? I know Kirk is. I know you. I am not. That's okay. <laughs> Kirk, who are you rooting for? <sighs> I'm going to have to root for Croatia. I mean, just because they're such the underdog and it's a crazy story. And I don't think they're going to win, but I'll be rooting for them. I hope France plays this
1: song all over the country if they win, because this is a jam. Listeners want to talk to you about the news in your neck of the woods. Soccer, music, whatever. Drop us a line at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, here with two guests, Ina Jaffe, correspondent for NPR News, and Kirk Siegler, correspondent for NPR News. Thank you both for being here with me today at NPR West.
3: Great to be here. Yes, we are excited. <laughs>
1: we are excited. <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay. Uh, glad Try it okay, again. I'll Try it again. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Did that sound fake? Okay. Well, when uh, you
1: say "did that sound fake," it sounds fake.
3: <laughs> it's uh, okay. Yeah, it's fun to be here. I mean, now everything sounds fake. All of this stays in, you know. Okay. All of okay. this. No, no. no. All uh, of this stays in, Angela. Christmas okay. real. Exactly. <laughs> All right, I
1: want to take some time now to talk about a story that I have been focused on a lot, especially since moving back to L.A. a few months ago. Uh, The story is always a story, but never, in my opinion, talked about enough. I'm talking about homelessness. Um, Last year, for the first time in several years, the number of homeless people in America actually increased, the first increase since 2010. And what's really crazy is that most of that increase in homelessness came from one part of the country, the West Coast particularly Southern California, particularly Los Angeles. Um, As you know, this show is based in L.A. uh, and both of my guests live in L.A. with me. And L.A. is the American city with perhaps the most pressing homelessness crisis. Um, By some estimates, about 58,000 people across L.A. are homeless right now.
3: It's extraordinary.
1: It is extraordinary. Um, Kirk is covering this. Ina has covered this. I wanted to take some time to talk about what's happening in L.A. and also talk about what L.A.'s problems with homelessness right now can tell us about housing nationwide. Uh, So to get into it, Kirk, tell me right now what L.A. and the mayor and city council, what are they trying to do to fix this problem? There's a there's a plan kind of in effect right now, right? Right.
3: Well, actually, there are a lot of different plans, but okay. the one that's getting the most attention, probably because it's, uh, depending on who you ask, most innovative or controversial, yeah. that is a proposal to, well, it's more than a proposal. It's it's using uh, sales tax funds to uh, build temporary shelters across all 15 of this huge, sprawling city's council districts. Hmm. That's a big
1: deal, building
3: 15 temporary shelters in a city
1: already as crowded as as L.A. Yeah, and
3: it it represents a pretty big change. And, you know, watching this play out, I got to sort of wonder uh, there was immediate opposition Mm -hmm. to this plan to bring the temporary shelters to certain neighborhoods. And I got to wondering like covering it like is the neighborhood opposition which is oft- often called NIMBYism not in my backyard. I yeah. mean is that like the number 1 challenge facing uh cities when they actually try right on the ground to do something to right make now. Well right? because
1: you've heard from neighborhoods in LA like in Venice or Koreatown, mm-hmm. don't put it on this block. It's too close to that. Don't put it over there. It'll hurt my property value. Don't put it over and, there because of this or and, that.
3: And sometimes you hear just don't put it here at all. Yeah. Um we actually have a little tape, I think, to play queued up from some of that very opposition at meetings that uh, I've attended okay. across Southern California. Yeah.
1: Our schools are being affected by these homeless coming in and they have to do lockdowns. Um, it's just not safe. I mean, we just have to keep our children safe. That's number one priority.
3: Having lived in Venice now for 10 years, these people that are homeless are not just homeless. They're drug addicts and they're
0: also mentally unstable they're dangerous
3: huh so that was uh, Sam that was Cheryl Nakono um, she's from Orange County okay. uh, which is also wrestling with this issue just south of LA exactly and that last gentleman was John Dosh who's lived in Venice right for the 10 years yeah, yeah a neighborhood in Los Angeles right.
1: you know I know I mean just thinking about how visible the problem is now you've lived in on um, the city for a long time mm-hmm. It seems as if homelessness has not been this bad in a while, and not been as visible across the entire city in a while. Visible across
2: the entire city mm. is is really the issue. Okay. Um, I covered Skid Row um, a few years ago, and what I learned about the history of that place, yeah, is um, and we should
1: say what it is for folks. Okay, don't know.
2: Skid Row is an area. Um, it's less than one square mile, and it's on the eastern edge of downtown. Yeah. It's always sort of been um, where where people landed when they had no other place to go. And so in the 70s, the city actually codified that in a way. They had a new downtown development plan, and they they didn't call it Skid Row. They called it Central City East.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds much
2: nicer. Yeah. But they basically decided that's where all the shelters are going to stay. You know, there's a lot of missions, which used to just be, you know, soup and a sermon. But these days provide a lot of social services. And that's where we're going to concentrate it. And so that's been since the 70s. And I think when homelessness was not exploding the way it has in recent years, there was an expectation in the city, which is like all you people who don't have any place to go, you can go there. there. And they didn't have to deal with it. Now it has exploded to the point where it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And when you see the same people outside your door on the sidewalk day after day after day, they're not the homeless. They're the neighbors.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, when we talk about how much homelessness has become more visible and kind of exploded in Los Angeles, there's a really specific reason why. So I called up an expert at USC. Um, his name is Gary Painter. He's a professor of um, public policy. And he told me this really interesting number. He said, of all of the new homeless people in Los Angeles in the last year, 53% of them are homeless because of just money. It's not domestic abuse. It is not drugs. It is just not being able to pay the rent. And he says the jump in homelessness is directly linked to the jump in housing prices. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we see across the country.
3: Yeah. People living right on the margins. People just vulnerable just one crisis away or people living in hotels or in their cars and still holding down full-time jobs oh yeah. and um, it kind of
1: bucks the idea of what we think the homeless are you had that person who was saying these people are dealing with drugs or they have mental issues a lot of times folks that are homeless especially now in this economy they just couldn't pay the rent.
3: Yeah. And I think there's also the sense that um, the homeless sort of get lumped into one category. Just give them housing. Well, um, some have very serious mental illness. Others have been chronically homeless. That is for more than a couple of years. One gentleman I talked to reporting this story told me, you know, he was out by the Hollywood freeway, uh, just sort of in the shadow of the buildings of uh, downtown LA. And he was like, I can't go to a shelter and I'm not ready for a house. I mean, I want to live in like a secure lot down there where I can store my stuff. So you can't just put people who have been living on the streets immediately into housing and and think it's going to succeed. And you can't put all homeless people in the same housing. Exactly. So I think the challenge, uh, whether it's this uh, road home program that we've been talking about in LA or anything, is sort of crafting different Programs that meet the needs of a yeah. very different uh, set yeah. of people. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, also there's a, there's there's so many issues as soon as you get into housing, and I want to talk about housing for a bit as well. You know, across the country, the numbers and the factors are very clear. We have seen fewer people owning homes, more people renting in places where there isn't enough housing stock. Wages have also been kind of flat for decades. All these factors lead to an insane increase
3: in the price of housing. You know, this is a huge concern that I don't know is getting enough attention in our news cycle. Yeah. I was up in uh, Boise reporting this story and and in that city the median home price is $300,000 and that's $100,000 above what the average person, just the average person huh. can even afford. There are rents in Boise, Idaho downtown yeah. luxury apartments going in renting for 2000, 2500 my goodness. Uh, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And this is a major driver of people living on the brink. Yeah.
2: And one of the categories of homelessness that increased yeah. recently mm. is people over 60. Really? And there has been a lot of old apartments, low rise kind of things yeah. torn down hmm. to build market rate as they call it but really luxury housing. Yeah. So there's a smaller stock of where people may have been living for 20 or 30 or 50 years. With rent
1: control. With
2: rent control. <laughs> yeah. And the average social security check is about 1350 a month. Mm. That's not rent. That is not even rent in yeah. Los Angeles, even for a, a one-bedroom exactly. apartment or a studio in some neighborhoods.
3: Yeah, Let alone your cost of living, your food and utilities uh, yeah. and bills So
2: and- um, I think that's really put the squeeze on
1: some older adults. You know, the, all of the folks in the know dealing with homelessness – They'll say the way to fix it is to house the homeless and to just put more homes into these, period. This guy, Gary Painter that I talked to, he said the fix to LA's housing crisis is just to have more affordable housing. He says right now to fix the problem, to really, really fix it, you would need 500,000 new homes in LA. And you're seeing places like LA kind of loosen restrictions on zoning and permitting to kind of speed this thing along. But it's going to take years to get that many houses together.
3: You're also going to need, at least according to advocates for the homeless and people who work in mental health and other healthcare professions, you need wraparound services Hmm. for a lot. You can't just build the homes, right? So the added cost, what also costs a lot more is the actual services, the follow-ups, the case workers. Um, But it's interesting because I have gotten a couple pitches from Orange County, another woman in Seattle recently, advocates for the homeless saying, please come up and do a story on our program where we've successfully housed 16 people. Uh, Doesn't sound like a lot, but um, there's a real concern within that uh, social services community that because there's so much attention on the crisis, the crisis, the crisis, because there should be, and that's what we do as reporters, and not enough On the solutions and what's working, that this will further make the public feel fatigued and throw up their hands and and say, "What can be done?" So why not focus on a little bit, maybe here and there, the bright spot, the good. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and you know, it's interesting. Like, I think a lot of times when we think about homelessness, we see it as this issue over there, but it is directly tied to a thing that affects all of us, which is housing, and. The way to fix homelessness is to help folks not become homeless, it seems, and that will only be resolved when we as a nation figure out what to do about housing prices and what to do about affordable housing and making sure folks have places to stay.
3: Because how do you have a, the saying goes, a vibrant city and functioning economy if a good portion of your workforce can't afford to live here or has to commute even farther or is out on the streets. Yeah.
1: right. Yeah. Also if you want to uh, hear more about LA's housing crisis listeners um, local NPR station KCRW has an eight part series all about it. It's called There Goes the Neighborhood. Also on that note listeners if you or someone you know is dealing with housing insecurity uh, I want to talk to you about it. Hit me up at samsanders at npr.org samsanders at npr.org All right, time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That?
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, HBO. From the author of Gone Girl, the producer of Get Out, and the director of Big Little Lies, comes the limited series, Sharp Objects. Amy Adams, operating at the peak of her abilities, says Variety, stars as Camille Preaker, a reporter who returns home to investigate a string of child murders. The case soon brings Camille's own scars to the surface. See new episodes every Sunday at 9 and catch up on HBO Now!
3: Hey, thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Peter Sagal. Come try the only show that treats the news the way it deserves to be treated, roughly, with lots of tasteless comments. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the NPR One app or wherever you listen
4: to
1: podcasts. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Kirk Siegler, National Correspondent for NPR, and Ina Jaffe, National Correspondent for NPR. It's time, you guys, for my favorite, favorite game. It's called Who Said That? It's very simple. So I uh, share a quote from the week. You guys have to guess who said that, or at least get close, get a keyword, whatever. I'm nervous. Well, you're always nervous. <laughs> That's why we love you. Uh, as you know, the winner gets absolutely nothing. So don't be nervous, Kirk. It's fine. I win nothing. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah.
3: So stakes that's, are low.
1: Stakes are low. Okay. You guys Just ready? the
2: humiliation. That's all. <laughs> right.
1: That's Just right. public humiliation. And you can get the name of the person who said it, who they're talking about, a keyword from the story. Just get close. That's all you need. Ready? First quote, another year of growth will make her the youngest self-made billionaire ever, trumping Mark Zuckerberg, who became a billionaire at age 23. Who said that? Or who are we talking about?
3: Oh, is it the Bumble? What? No. The, <laughs> <laughs> the CEO of the social media app. I thought No. no. Okay. All no. right. All right. Someone who was See, a, I told you I wasn't good Someone who is from a famous family.
2: A Kardashian?
1: Yes, we'll give it to you, Ina. <laughs> doesn't so, take much, does yes, it? It doesn't take much. So Kylie Jenner, uh, one of the youngest of the Kardashian clan, she is set to become a billionaire in the next year because her cosmetic line of like lip products has really taken off.
2: All on lip products? That's her entire cosmetic That's her line. Entire is thing. only lip products?
1: Oh
3: yeah. Well, you, you know, know, it's lips and other stuff. Sam, okay. Ina, and I cover serious news. Oh, <laughs> well, this is a billion dollars is serious, no I matter how you slice it. talk about makeup.
2: Come on.
1: <laughs> Ina's up one zip. Okay.
2: I didn't know it was a competition. Well,
1: yeah, you know. <laughs> Next quote. You ready? Yeah. Mini-sub is ready if needed. It is made of rocket parts and named Wild Boar after kids' soccer team. Leaving here in case it may be useful in the future, Thailand is so beautiful. Who Elon said that? Elon Musk. Yes. Okay. I got it. So Elon Musk, the billionaire and founder of Tesla and SpaceX, on Twitter this week... um, said that he sent over his own submarine to help rescue those Thai kids soccer players that were stuck in that cave. Uh, Once it got over there, the experts and officials on the ground who were going to really fix this thing said, sorry, it won't fit. But Elon Musk still left it over there. (laughs) He's like trying to reverse Forrest Gump himself into all of these like recent historical events. He also said this week on Twitter that if anyone in Flint, Michigan sends him proof that their water is still not filtered enough he'll send them water filters on the one hand you could say this seems benevolent but on the other hand it is such a blatant publicity grab you know
2: it seems like he wants to inject himself into every major issue where he can rescue people yeah rescuing people is not such a bad thing it's not
3: Ina you're up to zip see I told you I'd be nervous I feel so (laughs) empowered (laughs) that's
1: right you should feel empowered all right last one you ready this one you you, you don't worry about the name just figure out what I'm talking about okay Okay? quote because it's absurd we can tell jokes and laugh at it but there's still a tragedy there debt is holding back millions of people who said that what just get close
3: I mean it sounds like something a Republican member of Congress would say Uh,
1: Mm -hmm. okay what is the big driver of debt right now for folks Student loans?
3: Yes. There's an interesting thing happening. I know you won. <laughs> Anna's like, I it's like, how you did you were, this happen? I thought you were talking about national debt, not just personal debt.
2: Oh, no, I, like I don't.
3: The I, don't debt is, or something. I wasn't listening close enough. I, well, you've already checked no, out. That's, huh? that's,
2: yeah. Kirk, I, I was thinking the same thing you okay. were, but you got but it you wrong first. But you didn't say <laughs> it.
3: You just didn't say it. So, so, good for
1: you. This is all about student debt. There's a new game show on True TV called Paid Off to help former students pay off student debt.
2: You know, this is like, you're all too young to remember this. There was a show called Queen for a Day. What was that? Um, When I was like really little, was on television. And these housewives would tell their sob stories about... You know, not being able to pay the mortgage or their husband being in some accident at work or something. And the audience would vote for who has had the best sob story. Whoa. And they would get their debts paid off.
3: Oh, my goodness. Did it ever work? Do you know?
2: I haven't. I was four or something. <laughs> How would I know? Well, I know
3: you weren't on the show. But. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so this show is already getting buzzed. Uh, Derek Thompson, who writes for The Atlantic, he said of the show... The program implicitly punishes people with lower student debt burdens. On paid off, the contestants carry debt ranging from several thousand dollars to tens of thousands of dollars. And in the final round, winners can receive a check equal to their total debt burden. This means a contestant fresh out of law school with forty grand in debt can earn an order of magnitude more from the show than a community college graduate with just four thousand
3: in debt. This is a truly American answer to the a debt societal problem. Yeah, yeah. A make it a game show. show. A reality show. A
1: game Everything
2: show. is a competition. Everything
3: now. is a competition.
1: Speaking of competition, Ina, you won. You are the French World Cup team of this game. She has to dance to the Congolese pop I have to, to think Congolese about how
2: to celebrate band. now.
1: <laughs> well, cue the music. <laughs> dance to the Congolese pop band. Gladly. <laughs> Congratulations, Ina. Thank you. Uh, uh, Kirk, do better <laughs> next time. Yeah, uh, I might not get asked back. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That concludes Who Said That. All right, now it's time to end the show. As we do every week, we ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Anjali, hit the tape.
4: Hello, Sam Sanders. This is Alicia calling you while I am on the Pacific Crest Trail hiking. And the best thing that has happened to me is that I have hit mile post 1100 and I got to have my favorite ice cream in the world called Salt and Straw and share it with my friend and her lovely daughter. Love
1: the show listening to it out here on the trail. Hi Sam, this is Andrea from Essex Junction, Vermont. The best thing that happened to me this week is I saw my son preach his first sermon ever at our home church.
3: The best thing that happened to me this week was when my brother came and dropped off his two dogs and one foster kitten while he went out of town.
0: The best thing that happened to me this week is by this time I should be in Europe.
3: I got to spend my 26th birthday with my twin brother.
0: I finally got to quit my food service job and my new acting gig starts on Friday and I just couldn't be happier.
3: The best thing that happened to me
0: this week was finally taking a vacation to see my favorite band, the Avit Brothers, in Colorado. Hi, Sam. This is Dan from Chicago. And the best thing that happened to me this week, my wife and I celebrated our ninth wedding anniversary. In honor of our wedding day, in which I ordered her ice cream for breakfast to her hotel room, we celebrated with ice cream for breakfast with our two sons.
4: Hey Sam, this is Emily in Washington, D.C. The best thing that happened to me this week was coming home from a trip to find rose petals leading to my bed and a kitchen fire extinguisher that my boyfriend had bought for me so I can continue my journey of trying to cook more without burning down the house.
3: Hi Sam, I'm driving through northern Iowa on the way to meet my first niece. My sister had her early this morning, exactly 100 days after our mom passed away. And I can certainly tell you on behalf of my entire family that baby Helen is the best thing that happened to us this week. Love your show. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Bye. It's the theme of ice cream this week. I like that. Always good. Yeah, we had an ice cream social here in the office this week.
1: Very excited about that you are. That's the most excited I've seen you all week. Yeah, (laughs) I I, I saw the emails, but I missed it. Thanks to all the voices you heard there. Alicia, Andrea, Jessica, Josh, Jordan, Anthony, Haley, Dan, Emily, and Sydney. All of you guys that send in your audio, we hear it all. We can't play it all, but we love it all. Uh, keep those coming. Best thing of your week, any week, at any point throughout the week. Record your voice. Send the file to samsanders at npr.org. sanders at npr.org. What's your favorite ice cream?
2: Uh, butter pecan.
1: Same. Haagen-Dazs butter pecan. It's the best. Kurt? Moose tracks What little... even is
3: that? Well it's with the uh, I'm from the west <laughs> It's uh, It's with the little Chocolate peanut butter Nuggets in it Benilla So they Little turds Yeah look it up <laughs> <laughs> Okay
1: Alright Many thanks to our Guests this week Kirk Siegler NPR correspondent Ina Jaffe NPR correspondent Thanks again to the Rolling Stones as well. This week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry with help from Kumari Devarajan. Steve Nelson is our director of programming. We have editing help from Jeff Rogers. And our big boss is NPR's VP of programming, Anya Brundman. Listeners, refresh your feed Tuesday morning. I had a chat with Al Roker recently. The world's most famous weatherman has a new book out all about one epic flood that took down an entire Pennsylvania town many years ago. He says that kind of thing could happen again. It's a good chat. Check that out on Tuesday. Uh, until then, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.
3: I love a good saxophone solo. This song is now going to be stuck in my head.
0: It's a good all song. Weekend. It's a good song. i don't like it. <laughs>